just getting situated here, I got distracted by a very cute baby uh, back there wearing sunglasses, uh, Soleil. <laughs> um, and so I, I had to, of necessity, stop and, 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 and spend a moment looking at Soleil. So, um, <laughs> I'm Jerry, uh, Jerry Caesar, and uh, my last name is spelled weird, sorry. Um, and, and I'm the pastor here at Gulf Coast, or one of the pastors, actually, here at Gulf Coast, and I, I do most of the preaching here. Um, we've got uh, a team of guys that will share in that, and others from time to time. So, uh, we are in a series, go, uh, uh, Gospel Clarity. Uh, what is the gospel? Why do we need it? And um, to be perfectly honest with you, for the last two weeks, and then now today, the third week in a row, I'm really doing the same thing every week. Um, just sharing what the gospel is and why we need it. So I shared the gospel last week, talked about why we need it. The week before I shared the gospel, and then I talked about why we need it. And today I'm going to do it a little differently, but it's essentially the same thing. The whole sermon is the gospel, and the whole sermon will explain, as I share the gospel, why we need it. <clears throat> it's kind of fundamental. Now, each Sunday, if you have been paying attention, just layers upon the previous. It's not that I'm saying anything different, I'm saying the same thing in a different way as we approach it. And so the goal is, of course, that we really begin to understand the gospel and the nature of the gospel uh, as we walk through this series. Because everything we do in our uh, mission as a church is rooted in the gospel. Our, our missional priorities are Gospel formation, gospel culture, gospel mercy, gospel outreach, gospel unity. So if we don't get the gospel, how in the world are we ever going to accomplish the mission, right? And so we've got to start there, and we're going to spend time there and, 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 and then work our way forward. And I anticipate at least one more week in this series. I could go six or seven more weeks for as far as I'm concerned, but at least one more. But it will be near and dear to our hearts with everything we do. Uh, going forward. So, uh, I've got four particular texts this week that are, uh, as it were, the backbone of the sermon, and everything builds from these. And the first one is in Genesis 1, verse 26. The next in the book of Psalms, uh, the eighth Psalm, and Habakkuk, um, <clears throat> and, and, and then Romans. So, we will read those if you would join me in reading God's Word. I will be reading these verses from the NIV. Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, or, I'm sorry, the birds in the sky, over the livestock, and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now in the 8th Psalm, beginning in verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. And a single verse out of Habakkuk 2.14 may be familiar to some of you. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then finally, Romans 3.23 and 24, verses that are probably familiar to at least 90% of us in the room. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Sorry, that's the end of verse 22. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely 
by uh, His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And I want particular emphasis this morning on verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, open our hearts to, to hear, our eyes to see, Lord, so that we might understand. In Jesus' name, amen. The gospel is a story of glory. And, and that might be cute because it rhymes. That wasn't the intent. Maybe, hopefully it's memorable for you because of that. But it is a story about glory. Glory is one of those words which has become unclear to the modern ear. It has vague religious meaning. Sometimes in the way it's used, it refers to heaven at hymns, in hymns or, or at funerals. You know, they're, they're in glory now. Or one day in glory. We've, we've all heard it used that way, if we've been around the church at all. Some, sometimes, uh, you know, well, we know from Scripture that it's connected to God Himself. So it becomes a euphemism for, for God's presence. And, and sometimes we speak of, well, the glory come down. Kind of a heaven coming to earth. So there's element there. Which re- refers to an experience of God's presence likened to when God's glory descended on Solomon's temple. I, uh, Donna and I, a couple of years ago now, a year and a half ago now, on our sabbatical, we spent uh, a week uh, in Colorado at a, a ranch for this very purpose called Shekinah Ranch. And of course, it was its name is based on the uh, commonly uh, referenced Shekinah glory, um, combining our English word with the Hebrew word uh, that was related to that in that particular text. So, uh, you know, that's the, the, the glory come down, so to, so to speak, that people talk about. And then we, we read... All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I think more often than not, what we substitute for glory there is God's righteous standard. So, all have sinned and fallen short of God's righteous standard. We've probably all heard it preached that way, even if we're not you know, aware of it. I've certainly preached it that way. I've certainly thought of it that way. But that isn't what it says. Just plainly is not what it says. The most common word translated glory in Hebrew means weightiness, heavy. Um, Applied to a person in English, we would use the word gravitas. That person has gravitas. Of course, you recognize the root of that is where we get our word, what, gravity, right? Weightiness. But people with gravitas, they, well, they have command of themselves, right? They have substance. They're not empty suits, you know, a lot of times you might refer to a politician, oh, he's an empty suit. Got the look, none of the substance. No, gravitas, right? Gold is weighty. It's got value because it has substance. It's heavier than other metals. God is weighty indeed. Amen? He has glory. Other Hebrew words translated glory may refer to his majesty, his magnificence, or his renown, his honor. All words which describe true worth to someone or something. Now, unless I distinguish at any given point, which I don't think I am, I'm really speaking of glory as all of those this morning more generally. I'm I'm not being particular to one of those because conceptually they all speak to the same thing. Um, just different facets of it. Maybe you've heard, even memorized, some of you, the first question of the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Which, in other words, is why were we created? How many of you know the answer? Okay. Shoot, guess, say it. Yeah. To, uh, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, Right? Um, while no Christian would fundamentally disagree with that, I think it needs some sharpening. 
Um, many hear this and think something like, humans were made to just stay around God's throne for all eternity singing praise to Him. I mean, something to that. And of course, enjoying it while you do it. Um, scripture is actually clear about why humans were created. And, and if we think that we were created to stand around God's throne and sing praises to Him forever, then I would say, no, that's not why we were created. Uh, if you want to do that, you can apply for that job, and if He has that opening, you're welcome to do it. But I'm just saying, <laughs> I don't think Scripture says that's why we were created. Scripture teaches that we were created to glorify God by displaying His glory to the rest of creation as we bear His image and likeness. Now, I'm going to say that again because I know it's a mouthful. Um, to glorify God by displaying His glory to the rest of creation as we bear His image and likeness. I suppose you could say it any one of a dozen ways, but that's how I said it after thinking through these verses and many others. For a while. So, to glorify God by displaying His glory to the rest of creation as we bear His image and likeness. And I think we have plenty of Scripture to support it, not the least of which is the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. God's glory is not a zero-sum game. You know, a finite amount. So, if it's a zero-sum game, uh, if God were to allow anyone else to share in His glory, then He would have less. Because there's, it's, it's, think of it as a really good pumpkin pie. Or if you don't like pumpkin pie, let's go peach pie. And if you don't like that, let's go pecan pie. And if you don't like any of those, I can't help you. <clears throat> and, and, and so, pick your pie, but it's homemade. And whoever your best pie maker in your world is, that's who made it, okay? In my case, it's my wife, Okay. If it were apple pie, it would be my daughter, Lindsay, but that's another discussion. <clears throat> and there's one. There, there's one. There's three or four other desserts. And there are at least ten people at your house to eat those desserts. And you begin to cut the pie. How many people are going to have that pie? Don't act, men especially, like you've never had these kinds of thoughts in these particular moments. <laughs> okay, because I can guarantee you I'm not the only guilty one in the room. Okay? I want more, and if they have some, that means I might get, yeah, less. It's a zero-sum game. There's a finite amount of that pie. Okay? But, you know, we wouldn't act that way about, say, telephones. Like, would you want to be the only person in the world to have telephone? <laughs> would it be better if only three people had a telephone? Well, sometimes, as long as the people that are <laughs> bugging you, right? But you'd probably need more than three to be satisfied with having a phone. It, you'd be having to find some other form of communication. And yes, if not everybody has a phone, trust me, they haven't got email or text or any of that. Okay. Well, God's glory is not a zero-sum game, like a pie, if you will. With God jealously hanging on to it, though, in fact, he will never share it with a false god. And there are reasons for that. That's another discussion we don't have time for today. God's glory is expanded and increased as we display that glory by acting in his name or bearing his image to extend his rule in the world. God's glory is actually expanded and increased as we display that glory, now how do we display it? By sharing in it as his image bearers. And acting in his name, to do things in his name and to bear his image really mean the exact same thing. 
It, to, to do things in his name isn't to wave the magic wand of, in Jesus' name, over what we're doing. Okay? It's to act in his image on his behalf is what it means to do things in his name. If, if um, you know, well, I won't go there, but I think you can grasp that. Our task as humans is not to self-glorify, but to increase God's glory by sharing his glory in a derivative sense. Glory is intrinsic to God, not to us as created beings. However, God created us in his image and likeness and commissioned us to extend his benevolent rule to the ends of the earth. To extend his benevolent rule to the ends of the earth. His justice, his mercy, his righteousness, his peace, his goodness, his kindness, his love of enemies, his forgiveness of debts, his generosity. The problem which the gospel solves, pay close attention here because I don't want to lose you on what I'm about to say. I recognize that I could, but give me a moment. The problem which the gospel solves then is not ultimately human sin. Though penultimately, that must be dealt with, which the gospel does quite effectively to be sure. The problem which the gospel solves ultimately is a glory deficit. It's a glory deficit because all have sinned and, we could say, therefore, they were lacking the glory of God. That's literally what it reads, not fall short of, but lacking the glory of God. That's the problem we have. We lack the glory of God. By we, I mean humans. (laughs) We fallen human beings. That's the problem we have. We lack the glory of God. We have a glory deficit. We need more of God's glory in our lives, and we'll explore why I say that under four headings. Filling the earth with glory was the mission. Lacking glory for the mission, lifted to glory in Christ again. Filling the earth with glory is the mission again. And so let's begin under that first heading. Filling the earth with glory was the mission. How will the earth be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea? Well, to answer that question, I think we need to start at the beginning. That'd be a good place to start. By the way, good morning, Tom and Patty. It's been seven or eight months at least, maybe closer to a year. But uh, back from Arizona, I presume, at this moment. It's good to see you. Um, We read in Genesis 1 that God created us, male and female, to bear his image and likeness to all creation. Now, I've explained this before, but I'll briefly cover it here. That the word image, that's translated image, rather, can also be translated idol. And when it went from Hebrew to Greek, it was icon. You know what an icon is, right? It's an image of something, okay? But it can also be, in, in some ways, an idol. Well, God made humans to be his idols, which is to say God will not be represented by an idol or an image because it is inanimate. God will only be represented by human beings who can act on his behalf, embodying his kindness in every place around the planet. I mean, I I use kindness as a overarching, but there's a lot inside of that. But we embody his character Everywhere we go. That's how he created us, what he created us to be. And that's the only way he wants to be represented in the world. That's what it means to say that God created humans in his image and likeness. Kings in the ancient Near East claimed to be gods and had idols or images of themselves made to represent their rule. Often at the borders of uh, their domain, one crossing into that kingdom, the realm of that king, would see its image. Imagine a, a pole there with the image of this ruler on it, a statue of the ruler. You know, okay, I'm, I'm in their territory now. I'm under their law. If I do anything here, whatever their law says, that's how I will be treated, because now I'm under that domain, Okay. God will not use an idol for this purpose, but made humans to be his image, to represent his rule. When they asked Jesus, is the kingdom of God going to appear now? But 
What did he say? This is the kingdom of God. It doesn't appear that way. It's among you. In other words, his domain is where my representatives are among the people who represent him, who bring his ways to the world. For humans to properly rule over creation requires that we bear God's glory, not our own. We saw this in Psalm 8 earlier, beginning now in verse 5. You have made humans uh, a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. So, so God crowned humans with glory and honor. That's an important thing to note. Because we don't often talk about that in our theology. We should talk more about that in our theology because I think it's very important to, for instance, how we were made and what we were made for. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and all that swim the paths of the seas. So you see a lot of Genesis 1 back into Psalm 8 here. But God shared his glory with humans by crowning them with glory and honor. By sharing his glory with us, his glory did not diminish. It did not decrease. The whole pie, in effect, just got bigger, not smaller. And that increase of his glory was the plan. And it at least temporarily failed, but ultimately it succeeds in Christ. That's the end of the story, but we'll get to that. To understand God's glory, we must understand that God did not become a servant leader, uh, servant of all, after the fall when humans needed redemption. He has always been the servant king. Jesus humbled himself, yes, Even though he was God, he humbled himself. Uh, But also you could say, uh, because he was God, he humbled himself. Because that's his nature, is to do that very thing. Um, It's easily seen in Genesis 1. We've talked about this again before as we read that in its historic context. God made the world and prepared it to feed humans before he made the humans. He didn't make humans like the gods of the nations around them to produce food to feed the gods. God didn't need someone to feed him. He came to serve. And so we see that in Genesis 1, and it's, it's evident. Here's why this matters. If we are to rule in God's image and likeness, it will never be by ruling like the kings of the earth, but by servant leadership. It can never be by taking charge and making everybody do what we want them to do. It just can't be that way. It's, they, God's way of ruling is so contrary to human ways of ruling that it's almost inconceivable of how the two are, one's a metaphor for the other, and yet they are because we, we have to understand what God's rule is like. When Adam and Eve were... Um, told to fill the earth and subdue it, it meant they were to expand the sphere of God's benevolent reign, his good reign, until all creation became a paradise. Okay? Most of the earth was uninhabitable. It was desert. It was parched. But Eden was the paradise that God had created. What were they to do? Fill the earth, bring it under Control, bring it under my rule, subdue it. What kind of rule? Benevolent rule. In other words, expand this garden, this paradise, to the ends of the earth. This was God's original plan for the earth to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You know, you know that whole be fruitful and multiply thing that we have in Genesis 1? You know, have a bunch of babies thing in Genesis 1? It was never just about having babies. It was about having image bearers, glory bearers, those who could glorify God by representing him to others so that the earth could be filled with them. Why? So it would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Everywhere you go, there are are local image bearers displaying the glory. Creation, by the way, awaits their arrival. 
And guess what? That's who we're called to be. Amen? Because of sin, humans were lacking glory for the mission. Second point. The moment Adam and Eve rejected God as king, they rejected the the glory necessary for filling the earth with glory. We we see examples of that, and I'll give you three exhibits just to make the case. Um, How sin results in lacking the glory of God. Exhibit one. The answer to Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper, is emphatically, yes, that's what you were created to be. That's what it means to be an image bearer. Instead of life-giving, like our king, Cain became a life-taker. And yet God did not change in response to Cain. God spared his life. He's still a life-giver. Exhibit two. What led to the destruction of civilization in Noah's time? Well, we're told, we're told in stages. First, we, we are told the Lord, in, in Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of human, the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Pretty, pretty, pretty serious, okay? What did this wickedness result in specifically? Or how, how about this? How, what kind of wickedness specifically was he talking about there? Well, how about verses 11 and 12? Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. Hamas. God saw how corrupt the earth had become. For all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So because of human sin... Humans lacked so much glory, they were destroying one another. Because of human sin, humans lacked so much glory, they were destroying one another. They were life-taking, not life-giving. That is why sin is awful. That is why God is against sin. Acts of life-taking are sin. Acts of life-giving are righteousness. Acts of life taking are sin. Acts of life giving are righteousness. Exhibit three, Babel. It's another example of humans lacking the glory of God. They were living, this is in Genesis 11, they were living to make a name for themselves. They wanted fame versus sharing and reflecting God's glory to the world. Fame for themselves. This resulted in empire building, which always comes with oppression. For one person's name to be great, someone's name has to get erased. God had to scatter people to limit its scope. This is Babel, the same word translated Babylon later in the Old Testament, which becomes a symbol of all empires later in Scripture, which we just saw in our series of on the book of Revelation. We also have examples. So those are examples of how... Sin leads to a lack of, of glory which and what it results in. But, but here uh, we have examples of God setting out on what I'm calling a glory reclamation project. Various glory reclamation projects in this case. With the goal of restoring humans to image bearing and glory sharing. Code word glorifying God. It is, we were created to glorify God, but we're talking now about how do we glorify God, Right? Exhibit 1, Noah was righteous in his generation. After the flood, God restates the blessing of Genesis 1, adjusted for sin. It says, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Sound familiar? The fear and dread of you will fall on the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves on the ground and on the fish in the, all the fish in the sea. Now, That's similar to Genesis 1, but now note this element of fear and dread. Sin has now corrupted even their rulership there. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I give you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. So 
It begins and ends with this repetition of the blessing, where God is establishing what they were created to be and do. God is back to His filling the earth with His glory mission. However, of course, if you know the Noah story, Noah quickly failed to subdue the earth, but was subdued by it when he fell into a drunken stupor from his vineyard. Exhibit 2. Abraham. With Abraham, or Abram when he started out, God begins a major long-term restoration process. God calls Abram and tells him to leave everything and head to the land of promise. And listen to what he says. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Notice that in this blessing God keeps the onus on himself for it to be carried out. I will, I will, I will. He's not planning for this one to fail because it's on him. Okay. Exhibit three. It's our final example of this, but it's the freshly rescued people of God from slavery. Fifty days after Passover, in Exodus 19, they arrive at Mount Sinai the night before, and then we see this. God promises, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, And how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, to be clear, that is not some sort of, well, that's legalism and and they got to earn their way. No, it's not. He, He didn't say... Now, if you obey me fully and keep all my commands, I'll rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. No, he rescued them 50 days earlier, set them free, brought them out. And then he said, now that I've rescued you, now that I've saved you, if you want to use save, salvific language, they mean the same thing. I'm going to teach you what it means to be my kingdom. And you'll be a kingdom of priests, mediators. Between God and the rest of humanity. You're going to represent me to the rest of the world. You're going to be a holy nation, a set-apart nation. Set apart for what? For teaching the rest of the world about God's reign and, and sharing that reign with them. What does it mean to be holy or set apart? Isn't the entire idea of holiness to bear God's image? Be holy because I am holy? Be in your character what I am in my character. It's image-bearing 101. And that leads to our third point. You were thinking I'd never get to this point in time. Well, I did. See, we're here. Lifted to glory in Christ again. Listen to what Paul calls the gospel in 2 Corinthians 4 beginning in verse 4. And I'm going to read this one from the English Standard Version just for clarity on a few points that I think are important. If they're, In their case, the God of this world, which, by the way, is literally age, not the earth, not the planet, the God of this age, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel What's he called the gospel here? The gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, I was right when I said the gospel is a glory story. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Or we might read Jesus, the Christ, God's good promised king. As Lord, the ruler over everything in heaven and earth. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Again, that word image of God that's used 
For, um, in verse 4, for the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image or the icon of God, right? Right out of Genesis 1, once again. Anyone proclaiming that Jesus of Nazareth, the humble man of Galilee, is the Christ, God's good promised king, and Lord should, could never proclaim themselves in such a way as to lord it over others, but only themselves as servants, which is what Paul points out here about himself. You, you can't proclaim this humble man who was crucified as Lord of heaven and earth, knowing the way that, that what he did <laughs> as Lord of heaven and earth ultimately, You can't proclaim that you, as it were, represent him or work for him while you lord it over other people. It should be a clue. At least that's what a detective told me once. should be a clue that there's something amiss there. What light does the gospel shine? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God seen where? In the face of the now incarnate God, fully human Jesus, who is now God's good promised King, the Christ. Worth noting, Jesus has always been the second person of the Trinity, but he has not always been the Christ. Let me just back up and say that again. Jesus has always been God. God. He's always been the second person of the Trinity. He has not always been the Christ. He became the Christ in his incarnation, death, burial, resurrection, and that which it all culminated in, his ascension to rule at God's right hand. That's why, remember from week one, a summary statement of the gospel is, we see it in the book of Acts several times, Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus, God raised this Jesus from the the grave, who is the Christ. In places it says he made him both Lord and Christ. Uh, Psalm 2 is referenced as his resurrection, that God made him uh, there uh, as his ruling Messiah, his king then. That's what Christ means is Messiah. Um, In Ephesians 1, verse 3 and 4, when it tells us that God chose his people before the creation of the world in Christ, it doesn't mean that the Christ was already existing then as the Christ, But what it does mean is that he chose us from the beginning of the world in the future Messiah, who is God, the second person of the Trinity made flesh, who would suffer, die, and be raised, that this is God's plan A from the beginning of the world. It wasn't, oh my goodness, they killed my son, what are we going to do now? That, That the church spread throughout the world is God's original plan for creation. Adam was not God's original plan. Adam was merely a shadow or a type of the real king, the real ruler of the earth, which was intended from the beginning, Jesus the Christ, referred to sometimes as the second Adam. Unless sin is dealt with in our redemption, there can be no restoration to glory. Unless sin is dealt with in our redemption, there can be no restoration to glory. So the gospel has to deal with sin. and getting past that. If it doesn't deal with sin, you have no glory. For all have sinned, and they fall short. They lack the glory of God. But in Galatians 3, you've probably heard verse 13 a lot. You may not have heard verse 14 very much, but in the original text, there one sentence. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. In the NIV, the, the next line, the verse 14 begins, He redeemed us. That's just a summary of verse 13 because they needed to break it down so you know it wasn't too many sentences for us English readers. Or, or, or too long of a sentence, rather, for us English readers. But you could... Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. 
According to verse 14, the reason Christ redeemed us from the curse by hanging on a tree was so that the blessing given to Abraham. Wait, wait, the blessing given to Abraham. Didn't we talk about that earlier? That's right. Was that, wasn't that God's major glory reclamation project, the one that he put the onus on himself, that he would fulfill no matter what? That, I believe that was. He self-guaranteed, his self-guaranteed project to restore humans into image-bearing blessings to all the world, so that the blessing given to Abraham, that one, might come to the Gentiles. That's most of us. And... That is then restated as, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. The promise of the Spirit. Wasn't it the Spirit falling on the temple that created the glory, such that the priests couldn't even do their work? Wasn't the promise of the Spirit what the disciples waited for on that first Pentecost day? In the temple, not the upper room, but that's another discussion. And and they're waiting and the Spirit fell on them? The new temple? Not the building. The people whose hearts had now been forgiven and washed in the blood of Christ, and who now were being filled with His Spirit. Why? To the new covenant in my blood, the new covenant promised in Jeremiah 1 that God would write His law within them. He would change them from the inside out into what? image bearers. And he would remember their sins no more. Redemption makes glory restoration possible. Right before those verses in 2 Corinthians 4 that call the gospel, the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. In chapter 3, Pete read this text earlier. I don't know if he had ever seen my notes or not, but he read this text earlier. Uh, and, and after telling, ter- telling us that the veil was uh, that prevented people from seeing God's glory is taken away, in, in verse 15 of chapter 3, it tells us, And we all, verse 18, We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed, listen to this, into His image, with ever-increasing glory. Did I ever refer to this as a major glory reclamation project? Did I, did I say that somewhere? Just can't remember if I did or not, but my goodness, it's right there. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image, His icon, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The one present among us, the one that's making all this possible within us by the new covenant is the Lord, which is the Spirit of Jesus. It's the whole Trinity thing going on there. It's it's hard to comprehend. Forgiveness of sins removes a blinding veil from our eyes so we can now be transformed into His image with increasing glory. Our glory is not to decrease, but to increase. But it is not a glory that is intrinsic to us. Our our only true glory is a shared glory that we get from God. It's His glory. Any glory that originates in us is not of any value or worth, but He has made us to share in His glory and reflect it to the world. What do we see most clearly about God's glory in Jesus? And again, Rita, I don't know if you were still in my preaching or what earlier. But remember when Moses cried out to the Lord, show me your glory, and the Lord granted his request, here's what he saw. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Here's the good news. What 2 Corinthians 3 is telling us is that humanity's original mission to expand God's benevolent reign to the ends of the earth, humanity's original mission has been restored in Jesus Christ. Filling the earth with glory is the mission again. 
The Great Commission is to recruit and train image bearers in the King's name. That's the Great Commission, to recruit and train image bearers in the King's name. Let's read it. Matthew 28, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's a clear declaration of who the King is. Okay? It doesn't get any plainer than that. He rules over everything. A resurrected man, the new Adam, who is God, is King. Okay? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. It begins with forgiveness, cleansing, death and resurrection, all symbolized in baptism, adoption into the family, all of that's there, into a new life. And then it's a training community for image bearers in the king's name. That's what teaching people to do Jesus' commands results in. His commands... Our image bearing. If we obey his commands, we are bearing his image. That's what they're about. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. The Lord who is the Spirit is with us to make this possible. We are Christ's ambassadors. We are to treat unbelievers as Christ treated them. Mercifully, unless they are persistently unmerciful to others. That's how Christ treated people. He was hard on the Pharisees who were persistently unmerciful to others. But he was gracious to all who would extend mercy. And he kept offering a line (laughs) to the Pharisees. He always offered a line. Just take the line. We don't treat people as sinners per se. Though of course we all are. I get that. We treat them as fallen image bearers in need of restoration with forgiveness as a free offer of amnesty from our king. I've spoken about Dr. Paul Brand, who spent a lifetime among lepers and is a vital reason that the disease is all but completely gone today. Um, For Dr. Brand, his task, in his mind, was a joint venture with the patient in restoring dignity to a broken spirit. He said of his clinic, he said, we are treating a person, not a disease. This is, he said, the true meaning of rehabilitation. You see, he first had to learn to see the patients, not as lepers, but as people. He had to learn to see them as the people they were. We live in a culture that wants to identify everybody by something, whether it's their sexuality or, you know, whatever. The most important thing about a person is that they're a human being made in the image of God. Period. And that's where our task begins. Anything else has to be relevant to that. Restoring glory to them. Just as it's being restored to us. As ambassadors of reconciliation, our message is God's not holding your sins against you. 2 Corinthians, we know that verse. You see, Jesus died for their sins, but we are not treating sin. We are treating fallen image bearers. We're treating humans. Our goal is to restore them to true human dignity. To become what they were created to be, image bearers for our King. Remember in Genesis 3... In Adam and Eve's rejection of God as king, they became naked. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. They had previously been clothed in glory, but now they saw nakedness. There are a few places in the New Testament where Paul instructs, clothe yourselves in Jesus Christ, or put on the new person, or put on, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, Etc. Paul isn't just illustrating a point, though it would be a good illustration. He's capturing this image of our nakedness in the garden. And this clothing is our glory being restored and renewed in Jesus Christ. That's how we put God's glory on. That's how we reflect God's glory to the world around us. Well, I'm done. I've just got a few closing comments. 
boy, do we have a mission. Amen? And boy, do we have a story to tell. We, we have a story to tell. Sorry, my computer screen just decided right now to... Okay, there we go. Uh, see, we, have, we tell the story as we do the mission. Telling the story, it's kind of part of the mission. But as I read the Bible, we do the mission, and people ask us why we have this hope. In other words, doing the mission requires us to tell the story. It requires us to explain the story because we're inviting people in to share in God's glory to be restored to what they were made to be. Extending Eden to the ends of the earth and seeing people reconciled with the king and being dressed once again in glory. That's the mission. That's the story about the mission. And we explain how that happens and what God did to make that happen. And it ultimately culminates in explaining how God became a man who lived among us, who showed what God's kingdom was like, who suffered, died, was buried, was raised, and has ascended to God's right hand and reigns over everything in heaven and earth. But how do we set out on that mission? Simplest way, doing His will on earth as it is in heaven. Of course, there's nothing simple about that, which is why we need to know He is always with us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, we want to help you make the pie bigger, a whole lot bigger, right here in our community. We, we may well have some effect elsewhere, and we're glad for that, but we want to have a big effect right here where you've put us. Because you've put us here to be local representatives of our king, of our benevolent king. And to make sure that people want to know what he looks like, they can see him, even if in a bit of a shadowed way, by looking upon us. Yes, a people who always will need forgiveness but of people who are gladly giving it away as well. Lord, teach us to do your will on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.